1: Guys, we're back for episode eight, and thanks so much for being patient on this one. I know it's a little bit late, um, but hopefully, worth the wait. Just before we get into it, um, I just wanted to let you guys know that we've got a new um, website, new kind of company name now. So, the Pre hostel podcast is now part of Pre Med, um, which is Pre Hostile Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine Education. Um, through Pre Med, uh, myself and some colleagues are delivering face to face teaching on a variety of subjects, but at the moment we've got events on ECG interpretation and airway management. Um, And with that in mind, um, I've published our ECG syllabus, kind of draft syllabus for public comment. Um, So I'd really appreciate if you guys could check out that and give us some feedback um, and your thoughts on that. Um, In addition to the face-to-face stuff, um, we've got some online teaching coming soon. Um, We're just setting up the platform to deliver that. Um, And we have some merchandise as well, um, which is available. You can have a look at our shop. We've got some kind of uh, cheat cards for ECG interpretation, post-ROS care and airway uh, management kind of stuff. And that's all available on our website, which is uh, premed.com, P-R-E-M-E-D.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, so do go and have a look if you get the chance. Um, but that's it for now. Let's let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Pre Hospital Podcast. thanks everyone welcome back to episode eight of the pre-hospital podcast and um, today i'm talking to dr joanna paul um, and thanks for coming on
0: you are very welcome it's really nice to be here
1: yeah nice one and um, so we started speaking on twitter didn't we and i was kind of interested yes. in your and um, threads on physiology specifically um yeah. yeah so i appreciate you coming on just just for the listeners do you mind just giving us a bit of an introduction uh, kind of background to your to yourself if that's all right please
0: so, I'm Jo. I'm an anaesthetic registrar. I'm ST5 now, so I've been doing it for five years. So, I work in the Bristol area in the southwest. Um, I don't do much pre hospital, but I do event medicine um, and I've done some error retrieval medicine. Uh, and I'm going to, my claim to fame is that my brother is a paramedic. So, um, I hear all your guys' stories. Um, in terms of the physiology stuff, obviously, every day we're dealing with patients on ventilators, stopping them breathing, getting them breathing. And then also, we look after intensive care. So there's a lot of patients who are severely hypoxic, even with um, mechanical ventilation. And then um, our anaesthetic exams are very physiology heavy. And I had um, a tutor at uni who did lots of experiments with Mount Everest and altitude physiology. So we used to have to do hours every week on it. So um, I know it quite well. Some of it's useful. Some of it is less so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. I think so we put put out a tweet about this and i've had a few people kind of responding with some subjects for us to talk about and on top of yeah. that i've got a few kind of questions for you so so if that's all right we'll go through a few of these different topics and, and see where it takes us if that's okay absolutely nice one thanks so the, the first thing then um is is kind of my questions around a bit of an intro about the physiology of ventilation so i think it's a, a fairly good place to start um So my first question before we get into it is is some definitions because you hear ventilation um, being discussed as the whole breathing cycle and then specifically Mm -hmm. in critical care teaching it's often referred to as just co2 expiration um Mm -hmm. so give us a bit of a definition of ventilation if that's all right just to set us up for the rest of the
0: episode yeah so ventilation from the anesthetic point of view is gas exchange with the atmosphere so it's oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, xenon, whatever you are actually uh, replacing the gas in the air sacs um, and exchanging it with the atmosphere. Um, so alveolar ventilation is you can ventilate with any kind of air. It's like you ventilating your bedroom at home. Um, it's just a gas clearance and exchange mechanism.
1: Nice one. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um and yeah, so hopefully take some of your learning or well, some of your um, stuff from in hospital and apply it to pre-hospital stuff. Um, again, like I said, if we can recap some physiology stuff, there's been some qu- questions on Twitter about pathophysiology. So to kind mm-hmm. of set us up for that, um, can you just talk us through the kind of the basics of, of ventilation physiology, from the neurological control of um, breathing to this concept yep. of negative and positive pressure ventilation and stuff.
0: Yep. Um, So essentially, most, so um, a normal tidal volume, for example, and your average man is about 500 mils. um, And you can increase that with taking a huge breath in and out and shift sort of several litres of air. And you also have this residual volume of air that you never really tap into, um, that kind of is your oxygen reserve if you became apneic. Um, So in most people, it's about two and a half litres that you just never really touch unless you're taking huge breaths in and out. And that is your reservoir of oxygen. Um, that you need um, if you became apneic and about one and a half of that you can never you can never fully use up. So you've got about a litre that you've you've got to play with. Um, And the way that we can uh, affect ventilation is either to deepen it or to make it faster or slower. Um, And both of those things will have effects on both oxygen and carbon dioxide, which I think are going to be the two gases that most people care about. so with respect to control, so there's actually a lot of different inputs into breathing. Um, so something as simple as psychology affects your breathing. So being anxious. So those kind of hormones, adrenaline, they will increase your respiratory rate um, as well feeling anxious or if you are anticipating exercise. So if you get people on exercise bikes and you tell them you're about to do a sprint run on this bike, their respiratory rate will increase in anticipation. Um, yeah with just muscle loading and that that's it they haven't increased their co2 their acid turnover their lactate nothing like that it's not biomarkers it's purely anticipatory um so that can be a bit complicated um and then of course you have your standard things that we all know about so um elevated co2 is the strongest sort of trigger for um increasing respiratory rate um and very small increments in co2 will have a profound effect on your respiratory physiology Uh, oxygen to be honest as much as we all associate being hypoxic and having um high respiratory rate oxygen is not a significant driver at all of your respiratory rate you have to be really badly hypoxic before it cares and even then the jury is out on how long you will keep responding to hypoxia um so if you climb up Everest where you're going to run out of oxygen initially you will increase your um rest rate um you're going to blow off loads of co2 so your co2 will be like two or three it will be really low from where you're hyperventilating so much and then you just plateau you can't keep increasing your respiratory rate Um, and actually after a while you even stop responding to hypoxia Um, or certainly dogs do Uh, we think the same happens in humans but it's quite difficult to prove because you need to make people really badly hypoxic which is considered unethical Um, so there's carbon dioxide there's oxygen but that's less potent Uh, there's also acid production Uh, so this is Again, you know, it's feedback from exercise where you to do it or acid from DKA or acid from um, just being metabolically unwell from sepsis and, you know, your pH getting quite acidic. Yeah. So
1: let me pick you up on a couple of those things, if that's all right. So, yeah. so the first one is that that physiology of hypercapnia causing a tachypnea That's kind of yeah. been put in a bit of a spotlight with the COVID-19 thing, hasn't it? And we've discussed yeah. before on the podcast about these happy hypoxemic patients. And it's yeah. essentially that's the physiology, isn't it? So you can yeah. get uh, quite severe type one respiratory, like hypoxic respiratory failure, without yeah. being apparently breathless or having an increased work of breathing. Yeah. Um, and that's associated with the high CO two thing. So I think we're going to talk hopefully later on about resuscitation care where we're managing yeah. patient CO two. Um What yeah. What are the? So if we're if we're managing a patient's CO two control, ventilating a patient mechanically, what are the yeah. um, kind of issues with us not um ensuring co2 clearance
0: yeah so um fundamentally co2 clearance does two things um, obviously clears your co2 which is helpful but what's the damage in having too much carbon dioxide in your system yeah
1: that's the question really, yeah
0: um, so this is a really easy one to answer because when we do keyhole surgery what surgeons do is they pump loads of carbon dioxide into the abdomen Uh, to inflate it like a drum so they can get their keyhole instruments in with, you know, without getting tangled up. Uh, So I see all the time what increased carbon dioxide does because you just absorb it. Um, And we know from the books as well. But fundamentally, uh, it's going to really uh, suppress your pH. It's going to make you really acidic. um, And that causes lots of different shifts in all your biochemistry. It affects your potassium. So increasing acid means you retain potassium. So people who don't have great kidneys maybe will start to get hyperkalemic um it changes your um, your intracellular shifts of magnesium and calcium. Uh, so this can lead to sort of different muscle fatigue, muscle rigidity um, in terms of your observations. It's going to make you really tachycardic, pretty hypertensive um quite it vasodilates you. Uh, so CO2 is a patent vasodilator. So even though it will make your blood pressure go up, in my experience on the table, um, it vasodilates you um yeah it's kind of your it's a bit like a sirs response that isn't the mechanism at all but it's that sort of constellation of features and it will also make you extremely drowsy uh co2 um and the acid shift in the brain will suppress your respiratory center and your sort of state of arousal uh, which is what you see in your type 2 respiratory failure where they just sort of get really knocked off um so it, it's hard work for the heart having to like suddenly supply all these dilated blood vessels with loads of blood. It makes it all acidic. It changes all your electrolytes and it's just not normal. So, your body doesn't tolerate it at all very well for prolonged periods of time. Um, and particularly for head injury, that's of course what everyone is worried about. You don't want really fat, swollen, pulsatile blood vessels in your head when you've not got a lot of space um, and it's squeezed tight in a box. So, we aim for a, a low normal carbon dioxide of about four and a half. Um, as in in arterial uh yes there's actually not there doesn't tend to be a big difference um in terms of your arterial and venous co2 oh
1: no so my the the point i'm getting is that obviously pre-hostily we don't have arterial co2 we only have n-tidal oh i see
0: no that will be n-tidal so we use n-tidal we can calibrate it with blood gas yeah uh, but on the machine i would use n-tidal so yeah you should i think you guys have that yeah yeah
1: Cool. All right, nice one. And and so on the, on the DKA point it kind of leads us nicely into the next question which is around pathophysiology. And yeah. and this is one of the, the questions from Tith titter twitter (laughs) about um about different breathing patterns and and what they kind of represent and like classic classically we're taught about um kind of kuzma breathing patterns and chain stoke respirations and things as indicators of different um pathophysiologies but you you mentioned um dk as an example what are some of the classic breathing patterns and their underlying pathophysiologies and why does that happen if that makes sense
0: yeah, so um, kushma breathing is described in medical textbooks as deep sighing respiration. So it's huge tidal volumes that they're trying to sh- shift. And, um, you know, it is quite laboured, um, but basically they're just trying to shift their CO2. And what you'll realise um, as soon as you put people on ventilators and literally watch the tidal volumes and the CO2 change is that increasing your tidal volume, so stacking up all the alveoli that you're going to get rid of CO2 out of, Uh, really effectively clears your CO2. So respiratory rate does as well because you can clear more per unit time. Um, But it's it's the tidal volumes that seem to make a big, big difference faster. Um, So they really just try and get rid of this um, acid. And it's particularly the acid, it's just very stimulatory for that kind of breathing because it's doing those big lung volumes is the most efficacious way of getting rid of CO2 and blowing off um, your acid.
1: Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I think, I I'll, I'll put up a diagram of the episode but it, it goes back to that um, kind of standard diagram of different lung volumes doesn't it and and like you're saying yeah. the, the tidal volume is just such a small part of the potential kind of lung capacity and, and uh, ability of the lung to move a lot of air isn't it so um, yeah, the way the... I think
0: I think a full inspiration expiration breath is something like three liters
1: fine so... I'll, I'll
0: check afterwards but I think it is yeah
1: but whatever it is, like you say, it's a massive amount of what we actually move just in normal physiology. And the, yeah. the analogy that I really like is that one of the balloon, you know, where you kind of, you're just moving the balloon kind of from being partially inflated to a bit more inflated up and down. And then, like yeah. you're saying, those big tidal volumes, you're kind of moving the max, the a, a much larger portion of air from that balloon. Is exactly. That fair to say? You got it. Cool. So, um, what other kind of pathophysiologic breathing patterns do you see regularly so uh when well
0: you mentioned chain stoking yeah um so this is obviously a bad sign it's your brainstem kind of failing <laughs> to self-regulate <clears throat> so all of your breathing is controlled uh predominantly uh ultimately by rhythm pattern generators in your brainstem uh in your medulla and um co2 is like the most potent driver of stimulation ever but if you're dying and your brain is dying and your brain stem is not really getting the perfusion it needs and it's starting to dysfunction you know such as cardiac arrest um you get a really awful pattern of breathing where basically your brain is dead so you're not very aroused so you kind of stop breathing and then your co2 goes sky high and then that is so stimulatory for that dying brain even suddenly you'll have like a really rapid sort of um try and get rid of it and then it will go back down to a normal level so then you'll stop breathing again um so you get this pattern of um you know apnea followed by several quick breaths apnea several quick breaths um so you guys probably be familiar with that in head injury and dying patients we see it in dying patients um that's quite problematic
1: i think um yeah, probably with head injuries, you see that. And, and like you say, we, we deal with quite a lot of end-of-life care where these, these patterns become yeah. a bit kind of clearer. Um, in terms yeah. of head injuries, and it's another thing that came up from um, Twitter, so, is that yeah. the, so that pattern is quite classic for head injuries?
0: Yeah, so basically anything that uh, damages your brain is going to interfere with your breathing. Um, so you'll either have reduced breathing, or if you really are dying and you're coning and you're compressing your brain stem, you will have chain stoking
1: so if we um, move on to then if that's if, if that's right about the kind of physiological effects of ventilation um, yeah. I know there's a bit of a discuss. we had a bit of a discussion about this um, before but um, obviously kind of you know, we, we, you have these, or there's a lot of patients that we end up ventilating. And for us generally in pre hospital care, outside of an air ambulance system or an enhanced care team, where we're yeah. um, providing anesthetic to to take over ventilation. Um, most of our patients that we end up ventilating are ones that are kind of peri or mm-hmm. intra or very post-cardiac mm. arrest. Um yeah. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's not a common thing that we do when we end up ventilating patients, but it's obviously something we have yeah. to take a lot of care with. Um, and yeah. so it's it's not common. Uh, we don't get a lot of practice and the risks associated obviously go up a little bit as a result. Um, mm-hmm. So if we could have a bit of discussion about ventilation technique. Um, yeah. We have manual resuscitators. Most of them are 1500 mil, I think. Um, yeah. And you've already alluded to the fact that kind of an adult male has got a tidal volume in normal physiology of about 500 mil. Which Correct. is a third of that bag. So yeah. it's it's something that we discuss a lot in pre hospital care about overventilation. Um mm-hmm. it can you get a comment a kind of a bit about that, about hyperventilation in terms of volume and rate, um, strategies to avoid that and, and complications of of that kind
0: sure. of issue. Sure. So I think um, probably it's easiest to split into sort of anatomical problems with overventilating and then like physiological problems. Problems. So the anatomical problems are that, I mean, your lungs are pretty big, as we've discussed, I think your total lung capacity is like six litres, you know, three on each side. Um, but that can be reduced, of course, with consolidation or whatever it's going on. And it is possible to over inflate a lung um, if you deliver too high a pressure or too high a volume. Um, and it and you will cause damage. Um, and you know we've all seen it on ventilators. accidentally, um, their compliance will increase or decrease, which is just means how stretchy the lung is. So you can imagine if nice, normal, healthy people will do little squeezes on the bag and you will get your tidal volume um but if you do a but in someone with like a really tight asthmatic chest or somebody with loads of consolidation or fibrosis um you can do exactly the same pressure on the bag and get a tidal volume of like 100 mil which is going to be crap it's really hard when you're not measuring your tidal volumes and your compliance to kind of work out what your tidal volumes are so in an ideal world you would you would have some kind of device that could tell you um I would add that to pre-hospital care because uh, it's going to vary like completely um so I think probably the healthiest way of doing it and what I would do if I didn't and to be fair there are times I don't have a tidal volume uh measurer, is um try and just get a normal co2 so by that I mean between four and a half and six and a half kilopascals, um because you're probably then delivering um an amount of gas clearance and gas exchange that is appropriate for homeostasis um and and don't go squeezing hard (laughs) like it should never feel like a rock if it feels like a rock there's probably something else you can change um to try and improve your ventilation um and i suppose ultimately you can cause a pneumothorax um in which case, you know, you just lose lose your ability to ventilate The sets are gonna go down. We all know how to deal with that.
1: I think it's an it's an interesting one though, isn't it, about pneumothorax in the ventilated patient, because we can't kind, of, mm. kind of classically, certainly in paramedic teaching, um yeah. we get taught these I don't know how accurate they are, but these um signs and symptoms of um pneumothorax in a negatively ventilating patient. You know, spontaneously ventilating patient. And then mm-hmm. it's something you rarely see. And I know it's, it's been addressed in kind of more modern literature about how those negative pressure ventilation pneumothoraces actually present. Um, but in mm-hmm. my experience, going to patients that are twenty, thirty years old with a spontaneous pneumothorax, even though mm-hmm. they're tensioning, they're, they're kind of physiologically or hemodynamically quite stable, and it, you'd only mm-hmm. really notice when they get a chest X-ray or, or a kind of workup mm. in hospital. Whereas, and I think they're fairly rare to see a sick person with a spontaneous pneumothorax. Um, mm-hmm. or, the, or one that's still breathing uh, the, the ones we do see are probably uh, more subtle and insidious are so there's ones in patients that have been positive pressure ventilated um, yeah. and again kind of post-cardiac arrest everyone except the patient probably has a lot of adrenaline surging around <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah no you know, there's, exactly there's this a, is a problem yeah. and that's the thing there's a the stress of dealing with a job the patients have tunded and can't give you any real neurological indicator of, of distress um, yeah. So how, how do you recognize those patients that you've potentially caused an iatrogenic um, pneumothorax or, or kind of tension pneumothorax?
0: Yeah so fundamentally I would say you are only going to get clinical signs when your pneumothorax is large enough to be causing a significant uh, problem. So it is really easy to have asymptomatic pneumothoraces um of you know variable size and actually if they're not causing a problem with oxygenating uh with gas clearance or co2 um or hemodynamics they don't particularly matter and you probably won't be able to hear very much um all pneumothoraces Um, So in theatre, and it's rare, by the way, I've only actually seen it once um, in a positively pressure ventilated person uh, in hospital. But um, it's exactly the same. So your sats will start falling and you'll be a bit like, hmm, that's a bit strange. Uh, Could they have? Um, And you just listen. And um, certainly that time it was really clear that I couldn't get good gas entry in the affected lung. So I would say listening is probably the easiest way to pick it up. And even when we accidentally put the tube in too far and go down one lung, um And collapse the other lung by accident again. You know that behaves like a pneumothorax because it's a collapsed lung, even though it's just a matter of we would just have to pull the tube out and reinflate both. Um, again, it's just a quiet chest on the affected side, um, and it's only significant when it starts affecting your oxygenation uh, or your hemodynamics. They fill up quickly under positive pressure, and you would just treat them like any other pneumothorax with a needle decompression, and then if if you have the skill set, a uh, chest drain, whether you're in hospital or out of it
1: yeah fair and i think you touched on a a fairly significant point is that um prior to decompressing the chest it's probably worth checking that you haven't got a right main intubation
0: yeah and that's not me having a dig at paramedics in any way i have done it so many times honestly it's so common i really think that's very common check your tube lens <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely but it's it's it just kind of it's a nod to, to having that kind of structured approach to and um, those those intubation complications isn't it i suppose it's easy mm. to especially for us we tend to, we or we do um only cold tube intra-rest um yep. rather than uh drug assisted intubation so and again with the stress of being intra arrest, it's easy to to kind of put the tube a bit too far down so
0: definitely and um our problem where we get it in our training is peds because it's scary it's a tiny child we don't actually like it very much you know adults i don't really care i'm definitely not as stressed whereas kids you know and you're so excited to see the cords and put the tube in that you just railroad it home and you're like right intubated off i go um so that's like universal that's everyone and you're right the more novel and you know kind of crazy it, it is the more likely A, you'll stick the tube in way too far because you're just so excited to see the cords and um, B, you will bag really quickly because you're quite like, you know, adrenaline surging. So um, what I have to try and remember is that uh, you just need to bag at a normal rate, which is like 12 to 20 breaths per minute, which is like once every three to four seconds and it's actually quite slow.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you kind of yeah, I i do the same thing and again it's it's an interesting one to touch on because it happens a lot pre hospitally, I think. And I've I the like quite classically, it's certainly in my job as a critical care paramedic I I interact mm-hmm. a lot with the air ambulance team. So yeah. um I'll quite often be ventilating a patient post anaesthetic. Um yeah. and it's Kind of, I I I still, even though I've, I'm getting a bit more experience with it, I still have to talk, like count the seconds out of my head because you you yeah. kind of find if you're and distracted, you just sit there and you can you can see other people doing it as well, even really experienced colleagues.
0: Yeah, because you're just just kind of squeezing. Because <laughs> it's also like a stress relief for you to squeeze a bag and feel something It's very yeah. like. You know it's like those little squidgy balls it's um yeah and everyone does that so you just have to like be mathematical about it yeah and it calms you down as well it forces you to regulate your own breathing which does all that parasympathetic you know hormone calm down which is good for you too
1: yeah and i I think it's an important one isn't it that you know regardless of experience it's it's uh I i think it's an important factor that if you're ventilating a patient it's really you can't really concentrate on other stuff and I think yeah, a lot of the agreed. problems there in my experience is where you're you think you can ventilate a patient and oversee other things going on and just it just yeah, doesn't work you, out. You does.
0: just can't. Yeah. Um, I really agree. I know like where needs must and you know, if there's literally no one else to do stuff, but I think it's quite important, particularly while people are getting settled on ventilation, just to kind of know take it seriously because as we all know a and b when they go wrong go wrong faster and cause you more problems apart from catastrophic hemorrhage you know i yeah. won't, won't try and complain about trauma but um yeah um,
1: and on that topic actually with with this hyperventilation obviously the kind of more uh, or maybe it's, it's useful actually can we touch on negative and positive pressure ventilation are you able to just because yeah. we kind of skipped over that and i think it's a useful one to to really address a so concept yeah, can you just define that concept of negative versus positive pressure because we'll come back to the ventilation post yeah that's right.
0: So in natural health, you know, just you and me sat here breathing, you are expanding your rib cage by lifting it outwards and upwards, um and you are creating a vacuum uh, because you're expanding compressed air and expanding your lungs and that will suck air in. So that's called negative pressure because when you measure the intrathoracic pressure it has a negative a potential up to about 10 centimetres of water when you breathe in uh, and that sucks things in and it also means nicely that the lungs kind of inflate from the inside out so the bases expand nicely and I'll talk about it later but the base of your lung is like where the money is at for getting your oxygen the top of your lung doesn't have much blood going through it and you can ventilate it with a thousand percent oxygen but if you're not getting the blood there it's not going to pick it up so your bases are like the money shop. Uh, For ventilation. So, negative pressure is obviously, of course, um, the most homeostatic, it's the most natural, it's the least damaging. Your lung is totally designed to work that way. Um, But of course, that is not what you do when you put people on a ventilator and stick a tube in. So, probably either they are dead and not breathing to stick a tube in, or obviously, in my context, I've paralyzed them and stuck a tube in. Um, And you now have to find a way to force air inside. You can't do it negatively unless you're going to somehow put them in an iron lung um so you're going to have to use positive pressure uh because it's the pressure gradient that sort of forces oxygen obviously inside and replaces all the co2 and all the other waste gases Um, and that you know you use pressures i think in health Uh, it's measured in um centimeters of water for unclear reasons that are probably ancient
1: to confuse Um, everyone i'm sure
0: yeah but like (laughs) a nice young slim person you're probably looking at like 10 over 5 as your pressures and whereas it's positive pressure and your negative pressure is about 10 as well 6 to 10 so um they're kind of equivalent but they're not naturally the same and the way that the lung spreads out is um different you know the way the flow distributes is different um you are impeding blood supply when you use positive pressure so when you use positive pressure you are obviously squeezing air in so venous return trying to come up from the legs abdomen and everywhere else is struggling to get into the chest to fill the heart so it will drop your blood pressure um, if you have a lot of positive pressure whereas with negative pressure when you're expanding your ribcage yourself to open it all up you open up all the blood vessels and kind of suck blood up from the lo- legs and abdomen, uh, as well as sucking air in. Um, So it's just better for everyone to do it that way. And of course, when you have really sick patients with bad lungs, we spoke about those pressures of sort of 10 either way in a healthy person, but you're going to go up to 25, 30, and that's where you start seeing really bad pressure damage. And in theatre, we know that we stick to six mils per kilo of tidal volume, which is actually not very big. So in a 70 kilo man, that's a tidal volume of about 420, because we know that positive pressure uh, is bad for you, Uh, but it is life saving and you know you have to do what you can do with the time that you have
1: <laughs> yeah and it's difficult to fit an iron lung certainly an ambulance um, <laughs>
0: yeah i know i'd quite like one though they look pretty cool but it's a bit awkward to get iv access so. that's
1: it. that's it <laughs> yeah so i think that's the concept isn't it so negative pressure like you say spontaneously breathing kind of sucks stuff into the chest and i think um the 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 thing that people felt or the, the kind of the big learning point with that is is around the hemodynamics, isn't it? So you kind of you're, yeah. you're generating a negative pressure on the on the heart and stuff as well. And I guess that the, the kind of question I have behind that is about the hemodynamic effects of of hyperventilating someone that's being that yeah. you're ventilating, um, because yeah. we talk about how how easy it is to to accidentally hyperventilate someone. Um, but yeah. what effect does yeah, that have so on, on the hemodynamics, especially because? Almost by definition, the patients that we're ventilating, outside of your kind of background of maybe elective operations and things, for us they're sick patients, so the hemodynamics are normally pretty shot anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So what are the kind of yeah. effects of that? What happens to the patient? Yeah,
0: so I mean you've nailed it really. The two problems are you have impaired venous return, so reduced right heart filling, so there's less then going through the lungs and filling up the left heart. And part of the way that your heart generates such a good pump is to be stretched and filled with blood and then pump back. Um, so if you're getting less filling because the lungs are so tight and squashed full of pressure, or you're not getting blood through them. Your heart just has no cardiac output because it's not filled very well. So particularly if you're already underfilled because you're dehydrated with sepsis or you've um, lost loads of your blood volume, uh, you're really going to reduce your cardiac output and your stroke volume um, by Overventilating ventilating and constantly having a lot of pressure there um, in addition it's quite hard for the left heart to pump out against pressure um, so in people with heart failure we've had an MI again it's just more work for the heart and you can really see it when you have patients in intensive care on ventilators who are in heart failure you need to give them a lot more inotrope I know you wouldn't do that but as a physiological concept you can see that you are needing to escalate the dose the more you ventilate people so often we take a bit more um rubbish ventilation in blood gases if we can for the blood pressure and you just have to balance the two and I think that's really difficult for you guys pre-hospitally I think as long as you've got some kind of perfusion and some kind of oxygen you're doing really well um yeah
1: yeah I think it's just it's just understand that concept isn't it that the hyperventilation is is not only easy to do but um has kind of consequences mm, so for the easy. patient
0: yeah. Um, and the other niche thing is if you reduce your CO2 by blowing it all off too much, you really vasoconstrict your head. So you, if you overventilate and get their CO2 really low, um, it's actually not good for brain injury. You want to aim for like a normal CO2, not a very low one and addition so you can worsen stroke and stuff and additionally it it, we I mentioned earlier the calcium phosphate shifts which sound really niche but you'll see this when you have people with panic attacks who are overventilating. they get lots of tingling in their fingers and they faint so that's the vasoconstriction in the head and if you've got tingling from all these calcium shifts in your fingers you know what do we all think the heart uses to to pump its calcium so if you've got low calcium in the blood because you've changed your acid base from your CO2. Again, the heart's already knackered from having all these increased pressures and reduced filling. In addition, it's also now got less calcium to do its job with. So the whole thing just, I don't know that over your 45 minutes or hour or however long it's taking to transfer patients that has a prolonged effect on their time, but it might give you an edge if a patient's very wobbly. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's important. Like you say, we're not going to be measuring it to the nth degree, like you might be in ICU, but I think it's important to have these concepts in the back of our minds. And I think the bottom line for me, and certainly from going through my um, kind of intensive care placements was essentially. You know I'll, I'll never be able to measure stuff to the extent you guys do and i probably wouldn't yep. have the bandwidth to deal with it but having that concept in your head that we're essentially aiming for normal with yeah, most that's all it most is it that's critical simple. care um <laughs> it but it's, an, it's, it's such an important kind of concept and um i think a, a big take home from that is in, in those post resuscitation like post ross patients to, to target a normal um co2 yeah, um with exactly. your ventilation rather than you know, intra-arrest, we tend to do um, 10 breaths per minute, a kind of fairly static rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then mm-hmm. to adjust that post-ROSC um, to a, a kind of titrated rate, depending on yeah. um, CO2 is, is an important one. Cool. Thanks for that. Um, fine, let's talk about... Um, w- one of the things that people were chatting about before was uh, optimising care, like oxygenation and ventilation outside of hospital. Um, yeah. Obviously, we have less interventions available to us, Um, as I said, enhanced care teams have the ability to put someone on a ventilator, um, Mm -hmm. but it's uh, not common in pre-hospital care, and and for the um, standard paramedic ambulance um, response, um, our interventions for patients with respiratory failure are essentially nasal um, oxygenation, venturi masks, and non-rebreather masks. Um, mm-hmm. with the addition of um, like critical care paramedics that myself have um, CPAP and mm-hmm. no, we don't carry BiPAP I'm sure some do um, mm-hmm. so for though for these kind of respiratory failure patients um, how mm. can we optimize their oxygenation and their ventilation using our equipment um,
0: yeah so actually I think that's a really important question and I must emphasize anything I say is not trying to like tell you how to suck eggs or like reducing the fact that you just like don't have these strategies it's not at all I just I literally do this all day every day and see oxygen go up and down and the other thing for us is like what are we going to do when they're on a ventilator on a hundred percent oxygen and they're hypoxic I'm in the exact same situation then as you guys I am at the top level of everything I can do and they are still hypoxic but you can fix it so even when you're at that stage you can still fix it and it's it's quite simple actually which is why I must emphasize so if I'm in your situation and they are on their maximum support maximum oxygen I feel I can give the thing that makes the biggest difference is clearing sputum because you often in these chest infection ones anyway they'll have a plug somewhere um and this is trying your damnedest to get you know you can whack their ribs a bit, but you're trying to get them to cough up the sputum because often there's something plugged off which has collapsed one of your lobes and that's true for anyone with a with some kind of dodgy infection so getting them to cough up sputum gives you more gas exchange that works really well (laughs) Um, and the other thing is getting them to sit up So I can tell you the second I lie someone flat uh, who's been struggling to breathe, their, their sats will just disappear. And this is because you lose the lung bases when the abdomen presses up against the diaphragm and collapses the lung bases, your lung bases are your best friend. You need them open. Like you can't do anything with the apex.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I, yeah, I I mean, I've never been so interested in coughing people since going through ITU and hearing the amount of, times you ask people how well they can cough (laughs) Um, literally
0: oh my god if there's one thing i can pass (laughs) on it's gonna make your life much better
1: (laughs) it's a it's an interesting and it might just be me but i never grasped the concept of this mucus plugging thing and again in in icu i saw a lot with the chest physios where they'll come around routinely and and do Mm. kind of 20 minutes of aggressive chest physio with patients Mm. that are just tubes um and it's that because like i say i I just never had that concept so so what you're saying is basically the um some sort of mucus will kind of plug off a section of the lung and then that just yeah. means that percentage of the lung is unable to ventilate or oxygenate
0: yeah and it's usually the area that you want which is the bottom
1: yeah fine so uh, basically trying to get patients to cough
0: <laughs> yeah basically it sounds silly but like honestly that's what's got me out of trouble so many times the the chest video has been my best friend on more than one emergency occasion and it's just so effective and you don't damage anyone getting them to do it so I totally advise that and a lot of your patients will have chest infections and this will be a problem so that is one tip Um... the positioning is crucial as well You just need them sat up as much as your scoops and whatever allow, even if it's um, tilting at an angle like 30 degrees, if they can't actually break the bed, if you see what I mean.